we stand amazed in your presence. Lord, if the universe cannot contain you, how could my words contain you? Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning. Help me this morning to get a glimpse of who you are. That we might worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, when I was 17 years old, I... Uh, I went scuba diving in Mexico. I'd been certified all of of two weeks and I went to Cozumel to a place called the Palancar Reef. Um, If you're a scuba diver, you're probably familiar with it. It is is the second biggest barrier reef in the world and it's it's absolutely spectacular. Um, It's it's quite a deep dive. Um, You dive down to close to 100 feet and really, the, the, the modern um, diving requirements would not allow you to dive that deep after being only certified for a couple of weeks. But, but there I was on the palancar with my young brother. And uh, we dove down. It's, it's, the, the current there is about four or five knots, and you're just drifting along at a depth of about 90 or 100 feet. And just watching the, the different corals and fish just just float by on this, this massive wall of coral. But if you turn around and look in the other direction, the drop-off goes down to 9,000 feet. So it's just, it's like you're, you're floating there along on the edge of the abyss. And it is a, it gives me shivers thinking about it, even now. It, it was spectacular experience. But there, towards the end of my dive, I started to get low on air. And uh, I signaled to the dive master that, uh, that I was low on air. And he said, you're OK. But I really wasn't. I was getting low. And then I said, no, I'm like really low on air, as I signaled to him. And he told me to go up and my brother to stay down. This is all done with hand signals. You can't talk while you're down there. And I wasn't going to sit around and argue that really the cardinal rule of diving is that you never leave your buddy. But So I went up, started to go up on my own. And as I started to go up, I ran out of air. And there was just a minuscule amount of air in my tank. It was like trying to breathe through a coffee stir stick. And it took every ounce of restraint that I had not to rocket up to the surface. Because if I had, I would have gotten the bends and I would have died, and the, the current would have caused me just to drift along into the abyss, and they probably never would have found my body. But I was able to restrain myself and swim up slowly. I knew Boyle's law that says that, that the gas under pressure will begin to expand as, the, as the, the pressure is is reduced, and I knew that I would get a little bit of air as I started to ascend. And, and thankfully, uh, I was able to get up and, and get to safety. But just the thought of being there on that, on the edge of that abyss and facing my own mortality was a 
an extremely scary thought. There was a couple in Australia, Tom and Eileen Lonergan, who in January of 1998 went on a diving trip to, to, to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. They were a young couple from Louisiana, and they were, were having a, the time of their lives on this, this fantastic trip. But something horrible happened. The boat actually left without them. They came up from their dive, and the boat was gone. And it wasn't until two days later that crew on the boat discovered that their bag was still there when they realized that this couple had been left behind. So a massive, uh, a massive search was undertaken with planes and boats. For three days they searched, but they never found them. And to this day, they still have never found them. Imagine how it must have been for that couple to be floating there alone in the coral sea with the depths below them, the sky above them, not knowing if rescue was ever going to come. But as difficult as it would have been during the day, imagine their thoughts at night floating there, wondering what was lurking below their feet. And then above them, the expanse of the sky, stars and darkness as far as the eye could see. But as helpless and tiny as they would have felt, imagine now an astronaut out on a spacewalk. Surrounded by stars in every direction with the sphere of the earth far below. The only thing separating you from the minus 270 degrees Celsius and the vacuum of space is your spacesuit. And the only thing connecting you to your ship was a is a bundle of cables feeding you with, with oxygen. Imagine somehow that that cable becomes disattached and you're, you're untethered and you begin to float freely in space. And imagine that nobody in the ship was, was able to come out and to rescue you. There you are, drifting, helpless in space, knowing that your death is imminent. Knowing that your body, your lifeless body, is going to drift until the end of time through the reaches of space. These things make us feel tiny and insignificant. But they are nothing compared to the infinity and eternality of God and our complete and utter helplessness without him. 
Our moon is a quarter of a million miles away, and the sun is 93 million miles away. Our solar system is spinning through space at 134 miles per second. Our solar system is part of the galaxy known as the Milky Way, which contains approximately 200 billion stars. And our Milky Way is just one of 125 billion galaxies that make up the visible universe. Andromeda is the next closest galaxy, and it is 10 million, million, million miles away. And beyond this, this local group of, of galaxies are even larger clusters of galaxies, and man has no idea, no idea what goes out beyond them. But the endless and eternal universe is just one of God's creations. Again, it makes us feel small and insignificant. And this morning, I have the task of trying to explain something that is impossible for us to comprehend. This morning, I am going to try to describe the infinity and eternality of God. And this is as part of the study that we began a couple of weeks ago on the attributes of God that we are doing in response to the question of the Westminster Catechism, what is God? And if you remember, the Westminster Catechism describes God as being a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. Remember when I was a little boy trying to, to comprehend the concept of eternality and infinity. Now, maybe I was a strange little boy to be thinking about these things, but, but I would lie there in my bed at night and think about the vast reaches of space that space went on forever and ever and ever, and I wouldn't be able to get to sleep. Now, maybe I'm not the only one here but who, who felt that way, but in, in light of, of infinity and eternality, again, we feel tiny and helpless. As infinite as the universe is, God is infinitely greater he is infinitely greater than his creation. And it's really not something that our finite minds can comprehend. We just can't wrap our minds around God. A.W. Tozer said that the mightiest thought that the mind can entertain is the thought of God. The weightiest word in any language is its word for God. And he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most, most important thing about us. So we're trying here to, to comprehend something that is, is just infinitely beyond us. Something that, that we will never fully comprehend. Something that in, in glory we will grow in but even though 
eternity will go on for eternity, we will never exhaust the depths of the knowledge of God. We will grow in it. Even as we can grow in it now through the Holy Spirit in us as we study God's Word. It will never exhaust the depths of who God is. But still we try. We, we want to understand God. We want to, we want to think about Him. We want to, to spend our time meditating on who God is. And it's the most worthwhile endeavor that we can undertake. There is nothing more important about us than what we think about God. So as we study who God is in his word, we grow in the knowledge of him. We learn more about him. But we also get to know him better. Again, we want to worship him in spirit and in truth. There is no other way to worship him. It makes us more like Christ as we meditate on who God is. It humbles us and transforms us. Just like Moses when he was face to face before God on Mount Moriah, sorry, Mount Hermon. So we, we come before God and we, we're humbled by it and, and it causes those who know Christ to glory in who God is. It just causes us to bow in his presence but it causes unbelievers to rebel. They try to, to push thoughts of God out of their mind by, by indulging in the flesh or, or through, through coveting more possessions, through pleasure, through, through alcohol and drugs, but they can never get away from God. And there's a part of them that knows it, and it causes them to run even further. So our feeble minds try to comprehend God, but God is infinitely further above us than Mount Everest is above a tick between the scales of a snake that is crawling through the dust. And the depths of God are infinitely deeper than the bottom of the Mariana Trench is deeper than a coconut floating on the surface of the ocean. We strive still, even though we know we're not going to get it, we strive to understand him more. And it's because we were designed to do that. The Westminster Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But you cannot glorify somebody that you don't know. And you can't enjoy someone that you don't know. So I talked last week about, about being on that bus in Western Australia and seeing, seeing that, that incredible sunrise that, that just filled up the whole eastern sky. While virtually everybody on the bus was asleep and missed it. We can try to describe it with words, but it's something you have to experience for yourself as you study God's word in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We want to know God more. And we need God's help in order to do so. But so many people worship a God who is only a figment of their imagination. They want a God that that fits nicely and securely in their box. They're worshiping really a God that they have created in their own minds. And they have no idea who the God of the Bible is because they have never met him. Now, we we get to see hints of who God is through his creation. You see there on the the cover of your bulletin from from Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So here the psalmist is meditating on the glories of God in creation and then is immediately humbled in the dust to think, who am I? Who am I before this holy, righteous, perfect, incredible, awesome, omnipotent God? What is man? Who am I in comparison to him? Creation does testify that there is a creator. We, we talked about this on Wednesday night from, from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So nobody has any excuse for turning their back on the Creator God because everywhere they look is a testimony to his awesome power. Paul Washer explains that there is only one God and he alone is great. All other beings and things are totally dependent on his goodness and strength. If such is the case for even the most esteemed among men and angels, how could we ever attribute greatness to any other being or thing other than God? A comparison should never be made between God and any other creature or thing. As the self-existent and infinite creator is infinitely above his dependent and finite creation. The mightiest archangel is no closer to be like God than the tiniest microbe. God is incomparable. The content of the body of believers in the content of the body of believers, this truth is extremely important. There are no great men or women of God in scriptures or in church history, but only weak sinful, faithless men and women of a great and merciful God. Now this past week, if you're reading the Bible in a year with us, you you would have read in Revelation about the great angel who is going to, to come down with the little scroll and he is going to have his head in the clouds. And he's going to, to fate, have set one foot in the sea and another on land. This is one massive angel. 
but he is nothing compared to the infinite God. God is without limitation. He is absolutely perfect in his being. He's infinite in his perfections, in his presence, and in his perpetuity. So this morning we are going to ponder the perfections, the presence, the perpetuity of our God as presented perfectly in the person of the Son. So first of all, God is infinite in his perfections. The men who wrote the Westminster Catechism considered when they considered the infinite the infinity of God, they primarily meant his omnipresence, that God is everywhere. And we're going to examine his omnipresence later on this morning, but first of all, I want us to consider that God is infinite in his perfections. He's infinite in his perfections. Now, next week, we're going to be talking about God's immutability, that, that God never changes. But his, his infinite splendor and his majesty are never something that, that evolves or grows. It's not as though the, the, like the process theologian who believes that God evolves through time, that, that God was somehow different in the Old Testament to what he is like now. Because to say that God was somehow different in the past, he would have to have been less than what he is now. And he would have been somehow less than perfect. But God is immutable. He never changes yesterday or today or forever. His infinite splendor and majesty will remain forever just as they are. Robert Raymond, in his Systematic Theology, explains that God's glory is simply the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God, inherent in his attributes, essential to him as the deity. In other words, the glory of God is the express sum of his attributes. And they're infinite. Each of them is infinitely perfect. And we're going to examine each of these in more detail as we study God's attributes week by week for the next few months. But this morning, I just want to give us a glimpse of the infinity of God's perfections as we, as we study him. God is not just wise, he is infinitely wise. He's omniscient. He sees and knows everything, past, present, and future. Every moment in all of eternity is an eternal now before our God. Think about it. Even, even just to think about what is going on at this particular moment in, your, in, in, the, in the entire universe, just for this particular moment, causes our minds to, to bend, to think that, that, that someone could be that all-knowing. But God doesn't just know what's going on at this particular instant. He knows what is going on throughout all of eternity, everywhere, at all times. And he doesn't just know. 
but he, he sees and knows the best possible outcome and also the best possible means to get there. And in his omnipotence that we'll be talking about in several weeks, he brings about, he brings about those ends by his ordained means. It boggles the mind. In Psalm 139, David was comforted by the thought that God knew him intimately and exhaustively. He said in verses 1 to 4, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And God is not just holy, he is infinitely holy. As Paul Washer explains, God's holiness means that he is absolutely and utterly separate and transcendent above his creation and separate and transcendent above his creation's corruption. I'll say that again. God is absolutely and utterly separate and transcendent above his creation and separate and transcendent above his creation's corruption. God is completely and utterly separate and above sin. And his holiness is his, it's his preeminent attribute, and it's the greatest truth that we can, can learn about God, is his holiness. There is no other attribute in Scripture that is declared more often or more explicitly than God's holiness. In Psalm 50, 21, God indicts sinful men who thought God was like them. And people tend to do that, don't they? They, they tend to, to, to make God in their image. So their faith is really idolatry. The only religion that presents God as he truly is, is biblical Christianity. And there is no other form of Christianity than biblical Christianity. You may have heard of the, the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, who was a deist, did use the Bible. But in his Bible, he actually cut out all of the, the passages that he didn't agree with. So you can still see his Bible. If you, if you hold it up, it looks like Swiss cheese. It's, it's full of holes. So what he's done is he has made a God that fits his own image. Or consider the God of Islam, Allah. Allah is not just the Arabic word for God. Allah is a different God. Allah is a false God. God. His nature is completely different than the holy God of the Bible. The God that, that Muslims worship is capricious. He, he changes on a whim. He, he can't be, be trusted to, to be steadfast or faithful. God is holy. Isaiah 6.3 God is holy, holy, holy. 
This is the highest praise for God. It's on the words of the, in the mouths of the seraphim in Isaiah 6.3, and it's, it's on the, in the mouths of the beasts and the elders in Revelation as well. Likewise, God is not just good, he is infinitely good. He pours out his vast love on his creation. Husbands, do you realize that this is the love that you are called to have for your wife? The type of love that Christ had for the church when he gave his life for her. But God doesn't just bless those who, who love him and who honor him. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5.45. But he doesn't just bless those who rebel against them with material blessings. He blesses them by sending his son. And so God is not just loving, he is infinitely loving. God shows his love for us in that we were, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God is not just faithful, he is infinitely faithful. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Psalm 103.11 The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Psalm 111.7-9 and all of these attributes, all of these infinitely perfect attributes are seen perfectly in the person of the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1.3 So in the incarnation of Christ, we see God's infinitely perfect character on display. Now, Christ limited himself when he took on human flesh. But if you want to see the wisdom and the holiness and the love and the goodness and the faithfulness of God, look at the face of Christ. And miracle of miracles in Christ, God is working these perfections in us. Fellow Christian, you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. A perfect God is doing a perfect work in us to make us perfect. So we respond to that to him with joy and thanksgiving. And when we begin to understand these perfections of God, our perspective changes. The way we view the things of life change. Even the most difficult of trials we now see as opportunities 
to be transformed into the image of Christ. Remember when we look, we studied this from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, where James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God is working out all things, all things, for his glory and for our good. And just as as we will in eternity, without the the shackles of the sinful flesh, we will will grow in the knowledge of God for all eternity. We will also grow in the perfections of God for all eternity. We will become more and more and more like Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that is the great hope of the believer. And as we become more like him, we will be able to worship him more fully. God is also infinite in his presence. God is infinite in his presence. And as I explained earlier, this is primarily what the Westminster divines had in mind when they talked about the infinity of God, that that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere. As Robert Raymond explains, God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation, or that everything and everybody are immediately in his presence. Now, we need to be careful here that we don't confuse God's omnipresence with pantheism, the idea that, that, that God is everything, that God is the universe, or that we don't confuse it with panentheism, that, that God is in everything, as though he was some impersonal force in the universe. Because again, God is, is transcendent beyond his creation. And this is so hard. This is impossible for us to understand because we are finite creatures limited by space. We we are limited in in space and we are limited in our comprehension. In Psalm 139, 7-10, David said, Whither shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the winds of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. And this is of immeasurable comfort to the believer to know that that God's eyes are on us. At all times. Like the psalmist says, Now I will lay me down and sleep, for you only make me dwell in safety. We can sleep because we're safe in the arms of God. But just as it is a comfort for believers, the, the omnipresence of God is also a terror. For unbelievers, Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And in Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, 
God says, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? But again, although God is infinitely above us, although he is transcendent, he came near in the person of Jesus Christ. When the sinless Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt amongst his sinful creation. Yet somehow, even though Christ was on the earth in human flesh, he was still somehow sustaining the creations. We've already seen from Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But the verse goes on to say that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And similarly, in Colossians 1.16 and 17, we read, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, God the Son, was holding the universe together while walking in his creation. It boggles the mind. In 2 Chronicles 2.6, when Solomon was, was dedicating the temple, he said, Who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build him a house except as a place to make offerings before him? So even though Solomon was making a glorious temple, he understood that the Holy of Holies could not contain the glory of God. And he went on in verses 18 to 20, but will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? He says that, sorry, it's in 1 Kings 8, 27. In 2 Chronicles 6, 19 to 21, he says, Yet, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant to this plea, O my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night towards this house, to the place that you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of the people Israel when they pray towards this place, and listen from heaven. That your dwelling and your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. It's like the psalmist in verse 8, looking to the heavens and realizing that not even the heavens could contain God. And considering what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. So Solomon knew that as infinitely awesome as God is. He's also a God who is close. 
He is also a God who has regard for his pitiable creatures. And it is in this God that Solomon set his hope. And it is in this God that we set our hope. So we, we get just a, a glimpse of, of the, the, the glories of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when, his, when he was dazzlingly white. And just a glimpse of his omnipresence after the resurrection when he, he somehow could, even though he had a physical body, he could appear in one place and then disappear and then appear in another place. And now he is, he is seated in the heavens interceding for us. Not just interceding for me personally or for you personally or for you personally. But he is interceding for all of his elect personally all the time. Again, it just boggles the mind. We can't wrap our head around these things. God is also infinite in his perpetuity. God is infinite in his perpetuity. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. We looked at this last week from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. When King David received the offerings for the temple in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 13, he said, he blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly and said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our Father, sorry, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. God is eternal. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon writes, He has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have just, just a, a little hint of what eternity means. And it humbles us, like me as a little child, lying on my bed trying to comprehend these things. God has put eternity into the heart of man, yet it is, it is to cause us to strive towards him to bring us to an end of ourselves and to go to God, to go to the one who is infinitely greater than us, to the one who never changes, to the one who has no beginning and no end. In Isaiah 41.4, this is from Isaiah speaking the words of God, saying, Who has performed this and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, 
the first and the last. I am he. When he appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he told Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. I am the eternal God with no beginning and no end has sent you. These words from Isaiah 41, I am the first and I am the last, are used to describe God the Son in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, we read, we know this is Jesus from verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Just think about that for a second. Every eye will see him. I was talking with one of the neighbors the other day and, and, and he was mentioning how, and this, this man is an unbeliever, and talking about how this concept of every eye seeing God could be a, a television broadcast that's broadcast around the world. He had no idea what it means that every eye will see him. For as the lightning will shine from the east to the west, so will the appearing of the Son of Man be. He will be visible for the, for the four corners of the earth at the same time. This is again his, his omnipresence. This is Jesus. Verse 8 of Revelation 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is Jesus. And then verse 17 and 18, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Throughout all eternity, there has been a trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit loving each other perfectly, not needing anything, complete in their unity, perfect in their love for each other. And we see this in Christ. We see this in Christ. And we will get to know this infinite, eternally perfect God for all of eternity. This is our hope. This is where we, we set our minds. This is where we set our affections. And we, we, when we want to know who God is, we see the things of this world as distractions. As distractions that we, we, we don't want to, to hinder us from getting to know who God is. And we see the blessings that God pours out on us as opportunities to give thanks to him, to realize that so 
even though he is is so far beyond us, that he loves us in Christ. And we, we begin to change when we comprehend these things. We begin to grow. Beloved, we need to let the consideration of these things feed our worship. Call them to mind. Ask God, not just through these Sunday mornings throughout this summer, but make it your practice regularly. Lord, show me your glory. These are prayers that he is going to answer. I know even just this past week, we talked about this on on Wednesday evening at our Bible study, that as as I was thinking about about who God is and and really praying that that through this this time that, that Jane and I spend together this week that that we would be we would grow together in the knowledge of God. And and that very morning, even even before Jane arrived, I was was doing some work. I was washing windows and, and I had my, my iPod on and I was listening to a sermon and um, just thinking about, about the, the glories of God in redemption. And thinking about, the, the, about how God had saved me, a wretched sinner, so that I was no longer uh, in bondage to past sin. That I was even no longer in bondage to, to my genetic makeup. That, that I come from an unbelieving family. I, as far as I know, I'm the only Christian in my family even my extended family. And so God has broken the chain, and I realize I've been set free from that ungodly heritage. And it, it literally dropped me to my knees with tears in my eyes as I meditated on the glories of God and revealing these things. So we need to let the... the the, the un, our understanding of the glories of God, of the infinity and the eternality of God, feed our worship and let it humble us. Let it also spur us on to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if we are in Christ, then all of these attributes of God are for us. He is perfectly perfectly focused on you, on me, individually, at every moment. And this goes back to eternity past. We were predestined to know him in eternity past. He foreknew us, as he, as he does David, intimately and exhaustively. And he still sent his son to die for our sins. And so as we consider these glories of God, the infinity of God, it just causes us to to worship, just to well up in our hearts that just can't help but flow out in our speech. 
And so the, the way to overcome focus in this world is to meditate on these things, to intentionally put off wrong thoughts and put on right thoughts of God. And we also think, let it motivate our evangelism. As we think about the people that we come into contact with every single day who are separated from God and will be for all eternity. Don't you want others to know this God that you know? Those people are in far, far, far greater danger than I was on the Palancar Reef or than the Lonergans were on the Coral Sea, or than that untethered astronaut is in space. So think about who it is that the Lord has placed in your path to show them, to show them his glories, to show them the way of escape from his wrath. Maybe it's the checkout clerk at the grocery store or the teller at the bank or your next-door neighbor, or your parents, or your brother or sister, or an orphan from India, or a South American native. Who has God called you to reach? The response of those who have not been born again when they are faced with these glories of God will be one of dread and foreboding. And the comforts and the distractions of this life may offer some, some meager, temporary solace, but they won't last because the Lord is coming back. This infinitely holy, righteous God must punish sin. And whatever sense of concern they have here will melt away into abject terror as they behold the face of this glorious God coming in the clouds. They will vainly try to hide themselves in the rocks and, the, and cry out for the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Like a cockroach-infested basement, when the lights turn on, they will all scurry for cover but the spotlight will be on each one individually. Every single sinful attitude, every single lustful glance, every single prideful thought, every single covetous hoarding will be exposed in the light of of the glorious God. Because sin is ultimately against an infinite God, his punishment is infinite. Likewise, his punishment will be eternal. The smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. They will have no rest day or night. So, beloved, we can rejoice that we have been redeemed from these things. 
that we can say, even so, come Lord Jesus. That for us, the glory of his appearing. Think about that. The glory of the appearing of Christ. And knowing, knowing that you will know him even as he knows you. And that eternity will never be exhausted as you grow in the knowledge of him. But unbeliever, unbeliever, And statistically, given the size of this gathering, there are, I'm fairly certain, unbelievers in this room. Think of the infinity and the eternality of the Holy God and flee to Him for safety. For there is no other name given under heaven, by which men must be saved. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we bow in your presence. Lord, we pray that you will cause us by your spirit to grow in your knowledge so that we might be better equipped to worship you as you really are. For we pray this in the infinite name of Jesus Christ. Amen.